This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Gary, how are you? I'm well. How are you? Very good. I appreciate you taking the time. I'm happy to be here. Where in the world are you right now? I'm in Stockholm. Stock Stockholm. Wow. Well, uh, a little. That's a few thousand miles away uh, from us. We're in uh, Austin. Most of us are in Austin. Uh, we have a few people in the Philippines joining as well uh, in, a- in Asia, um, and we're all very excited to, uh, uh, to be here and appreciate you taking the time. I know you have an extremely uh, busy schedule. I'm happy to um, be here. Thanks for having me. Very good. So we'll, we'll jump right in. Um, we wanted to uh, essentially ask some questions. We have a, a little bit of a flow, and then if we can just open it up to anyone who has a question, I think that could be uh, really good. I would love that. Awesome. Uh, so we'll go ahead and uh, jump right in. I guess we, we're curious about a few things. So there's a few different categories. Uh, early life, um, you know, and we just kind of want to get an understanding from the, the, the type of environment you were exposed to uh, in your childhood and, and the pathways that were in front of you and how you avoided certain pitfalls, um, figuring out what your passion was, um, you know, understanding you know, how things were important to you, how you viewed them, um, and, and how you sort of went against the grain as you were growing up and figuring out uh, some of those main things. Then, you know, catching wind, right? What was your turning point? What was, uh, you know, things that you did to uh, get to where you are today, right? With VaynerMedia and uh, how you approach ideas. Uh, and then looking back uh, on life lessons, is there anything you would change, right? So we're going to kind of go through that that flow, and then we have a few other questions re- regarding empathy, uh, which we're, I'm, I, uh, I'm very um, uh, interested in, and our team is very interested in as well, on how you um, uh, emulate that in your company um, and your daily life. I love it. I'm incredibly locked in and ready to go. <laughs> very good. Uh, well, let's start off with, with your early life. What were, what were some things in your environment that you were exposed to in your, in your childhood? Um, uh, adversity, uh, great warmth and love, um, accountability, responsibility. You know, I'm an immigrant from Belarus, which, you know, unfortunately for their actions is now a place people know. Um, and came to the U.S. in 78, was very poor. You know, that's really the only way to put it. We had nine family members in a studio apartment. I'm, I really need people to wrap their head around what I'm saying. Um, so it was really hardcore stuff for a couple of years. And then, you know, I have good DNA. So my dad and mom worked their butts off and my dad got a job as a stock boy in a liquor store. And to this day, you know, it's funny, ask my team today, uh, my content team, to dig up every piece of content that we can find where I talk about saving money. Um, and I talk about it all the time and nobody ever talks about it to me. Mm. When, when I tell you, like, if you asked my 5,000 hardest core content consumers, name things Gary talks about, I promise you it would be an hour before they talk about saving money, even though I'm about to put out a video that has me mentioning it 115 times in the last two years. <laughs> So, you know, I learned that early on because I watched my family really get out of poverty um, to middle class in a short period of time by literally not spending a penny on anything but food and shelter. Um, You know, I've been saying something lately, Brent, that I think might make sense to what um, um, we talk about. And, you know, I've come to believe that if somebody is born in a home with little, but with a lot of love around it, they are the most prepared for a happy life because they're taught subconsciously at a young age that money is not the variable of happiness. Mm. So as you were asking the question, I'm like, that's, that's where my brain went. I'm like, man, what was my surroundings? The perfect storm for what I think is a really good framework for life, which is you know, very in, like an all-time mom who just loved me to death but also really 
extenuated and focused on the things I was good at, but held me accountable to things that I wasn't good at, but didn't make me feel like I sucked because I wasn't good at it, which is crazy because the thing I wasn't good at is the core thing, which was school. Like if you think about how we judge kids before they're 18 years old, outside of, think about this, we basically judge children in modern society for the last 75 years, predominantly on school, occasionally on sports, physical appearance, but those are like the three or four things kids hear about. Mm. Like that's just like it. And so um, I was very fortunate. My mom was way ahead of her time and really focused on pointing out how naturally kind I was. I remember things vividly like a kid, you know, and I was grew up in the eighties in Jersey. So we were all outside all the time. And my mom would point out when I, you know, a kid got hurt and I would stop the game and we would all, like I was very much who I am now, a leader of the kids and we'd have to stop the game and make sure, you know, Quan was good. You know, like you got, you know, we got to be good about each other. And that, like, and, and she would make a big to-do about that, right? Like she would see that from afar watching the kids play. And then for weeks, my mom would be like, the way you stopped that game and you made sure your boy Mike Quan was good. And like, then you guys, <laughs> play, you know, like, you know what I mean? Like she would, I opened a, I once opened a door for an 80 year old woman at a McDonald's and you would have thought I won the Nobel Peace Prize. <laughs> and so, you know, I very much parent my kids that way. I, my son is incredibly empathetic and compassionate and I go bananas when I see him deploy it to his friends and make him know like that's the game. So, and then, and then on the flip side, not only were we not really wealthy, but my mom was cheap. She's still cheap, right? And, yeah. and so me and my sister had an aha moment five years ago. We're like, wait a minute. We got out of being like poor pretty quick. We were lower middle class for a while. We we're in middle class for a while. We we're even, you know, towards the end, we we're even like starting to go to that next chapter. And yet mom never bought anything for us. And we never went on a family vacation and we never had the swag or anything. And so we started getting, we were like razzing her a little bit. We we're, were like, you could have given us a little something. But what that did was it taught me that I had, if I was hungry, I had to hunt for my own food. And so I was lemonade stands, washing car. I mean, more than half my days of my childhood in the summer, I either was playing sports outside or I was ringing people's doorbells trying to get a dollar some way. Mm. Can I wash your car? Can I shovel your driveway? Do you want to buy this stuff that I found outside? Like whatever it took. And so I, you know, I'm, I'm a 46 year old man that has a platform now. And I look at the things that come out of my mouth and sometimes I step out of my own self and I'm like, man, this is just my childhood and my parent, how I was parented. And so it's a fun question for me to answer because it's, gives me a great opportunity to give roses to my parents. Yeah, that's very key. I, you know, like the, just what you're exposed to, right? But piggybacking on that, I thought that was interesting. Like in regards to, uh, you know, things that that you saw and, and had to deal with, what, like you were growing up with different people at that time, right? I, I, got, real, I got real lucky. If you go, I don't know if you know this about me, if that's why you're going there, man, oh man. I found my second grade picture. I went to, Mar first of all, I went to Martin Luther King Elementary School, right? And- I, even looking at this, as a matter of fact, we have some great diversity here on Zoom. That was my second grade. It's I posted, I'll probably post it next week just because you got me thinking about it. I can't, man, I, I was so exposed so perfectly to crazy levels of diversity. Just every culture, black, white, Asian, mm. Indian. And it, it just like, it, it, you know, it's so funny. I, I'm at this fancy conference here in Sweden where we're trying to, you know, really do right by the world. It's really hefty shit. Like, sustainability, kindness. The president of Ukraine just did a hologram speech to this group. So it's Ooh. a, I'm at a foofy, foofy off the record event, right? And somebody was talking to me about something and like, you know, I was at this event four years ago and, you know, my popularity has grown a lot in the last four years. So it was interesting, even though it's foofy, foofy, like people that like I grew up like looking up to, or like people that are really doing things in the world right now, I got a little love when I walked in. So it's been like, I've had a good chapter, right? And so I got this little group of like legit people circling around me and I'm talking and somebody said something. And my answer was, cause I love people. 
Mm. And and I, I think about the DNA I was given, but to your point, I do think I got really fortunate. You know, they talk about environment. It's not just your DNA and how you're parented, it's your environment. And boy, oh boy, for somebody who naturally likes people to be thrown into, I mean it. I hope you guys, if somebody gets curious about this, looks back at some of my old Instagram photos, you'll find it. My second grade photo, it's crazy. It's the United Nations. And I didn't know any different. That was just my life. So my third grade best friend, Brian Chen, it's Brian Chen. My fourth grade best friend, Rashawn Courtney, it's Rashawn Courtney. Like, you know, like it, it is. And uh, it really became foundational for my life. And it, and it taught me a ton of different cultures. You know, uh, I learned a lot in that environment. Right on. No, that's great. Uh, tell, talk to us a little bit about finding your passion, right? When you, when you, was it at a young age when you realized, yes. you know what, there's something here that I have yes. that is. You know, you yeah. know what, what you have to jump in because I want to get as much out for you guys in this time together. I have never been good at anything but besides being me. I think the reason that people really fuck with me is people are animals and all of you have senses. And even, and by the way, by show of hands, this is important. I want everybody here, this is gonna help you. By show of hands, I see a bunch of people not on screen. If you can appease me and go on screen for a second. Paige White, I'm Paige Wright, I see you. <laughs> Let's, you know, I see you, Wendy. Um, I want everybody to see this. This is very, very important. And don't appease me, because I'm doing this for you, not for me. By show of hands, how many people here, when they first came across my content on the internet, thought I didn't like me, thought I was full of shit or snake oil salesman or something negative. Raise your hand, raise it. This is important. I appreciate it, everybody. Thank you. This is the point I'm trying to make. Thank you. Especially Quan, the reason I used him, he gave me such love when I came on in the chat. So I was immediately like, and to see him raise his hand, this is important. This is what I want you to hear. What I know about life is the truth wins in the end, always. I really believe that. Sometimes it takes decades. Sometimes it takes an hour. Humans are very good at sniffing out. We're animals, just like a dog, right? Now, we sometimes start off with misconceptions and that's based on you know who you are, right? Like the reason I asked that question and, and thanks Debbie, the cursing one you over, it, it has other people not about me, right? Everyone's different. But in the end, people will get to the same place if you're that person. And so one of the reasons I've never struggled with being misjudged is I know who I am. And in the end, I know all of you will figure that out. And so, you know, I think that I, I just knew who I was, B.O. I knew who I was. And you got to remember this, I, I'm trying to look, maybe in the screen, I see a couple of people that might be closer to my age, but this is a young crew. But for anybody over 45 on this call, they know what I'm about to say is very true. There wasn't even a conversation when we were kids about entrepreneurship. We didn't even know the word existed. Mm -hmm. It was college, the end. So I was told I was a loser my whole life because I was a really bad student. But it was because I was so passionate about my entrepreneurship that I couldn't breathe. I couldn't even, I'm no dummy. I'm a pretty bright kid but I couldn't even conform to get C's. I, Brent, I couldn't, my mom used to beg me. She's like, you're so smart. Just get a C. I'm like, I can't. I'm not going to, I'm not going to listen to a thing in class. I'm not going to do homework. I'm not going to take the test. I need every ounce of energy. I didn't say this. I, I said it to myself and I didn't even really say it to myself. It took me years after I was a little bit older to realize this is what was happening. I just needed to work on my craft. You know, when Malcolm Gladwell came out with that 10,000 hours thing concept, mm -hmm. I was laughing. I was like, man, I was at 10,000 hours by the time I was 16, which is why a lot of the things that happened in my career make sense. By the time I took over my daddy's liquor store at 22, I was a veteran in business. Of course, it went from three to 65 million in a heartbeat. It sounds crazy when it's a 23, 24 year old kid, right? And not valuation like the new world, no revenue, like I built it. But by the time I was there, I was refined. I was a real operator. And so I knew it early, but let me tell you what I've extracted out of that that will make sense for everybody that might bring value to everybody. I actually believe everybody on this call right now knows what their passion is. Mm -hmm. I believe they talk themselves out of it because they think it's silly or it won't make money. Ooh. This is a very big thought Ooh. I've been working on in my yeah. lab. 
This is one of the first times I'm putting it out there. I've said it here and there a little bit, but this is the first time I'm really put, it is deep, Anthony. It's, I think all of you know. <laughs> it is deep, Anthony. I think all of you know. Yes, Catherine, this is good. This is good stuff. I think you know you love music, cooking, skiing, the transformers, hip hop, sneakers, uh, sailing, golf. I think you know that. I know you know that. I just don't think you think you can make a profession out of it or what you really love is some silly shit. Like if you really went into like some full lie detector stuff, somebody's answer might be the Power Rangers and that might just seem too silly. Yet I believe if the Power Rangers, the cartoon, the thing from back in the day, if you went ham and made content, YouTube videos, a podcast, NFTs, social media content, I know for a fact you could make $100,000 a year through brand deals, selling hoodies, speaking, but people are scared of other people's judgment. Mm -hmm. When I was 20 and 17 and 15, most of my friends' number one passion was video games. Nobody, not even myself, thought video games was a profession back then. If one of my friends had the conviction to heed the call that I'm saying out loud today, they would be a pioneer in the video game industry, mm. making six figures, doing the thing they love more instead of being a retailer executive or a lawyer. I'm very passionate about this. I believe people know their passion. I think people are scared to live within humble means. This is a big one, Brand. I think people are scared to live a life that means that they make 63,000 a year because we've lost our way of living within our means. Mm -hmm. We need to redefine success in our society. We need to redefine success. I know unlimited, unlimited, miserable millionaires. Unlimited. I can name 500 if you gave me an hour. And I know friends that make less than 80,000 a year that are genuinely deeply happy. And we must educate the world about this truth. There, I just, we just must, we must change the conversation of what success looks like. So I knew my passion early and I had some weird ass luck of the draw of environment, parenting, DNA that let me lean into it when it wasn't easy. But as grownups on this call, some of you need to take the risk to start building content around the thing you love the most. And that content may lead to your ability to monetize it which will then change the course of your life because you will enjoy what you do. That's, that's phenomenal. I, I, think, I think jumping in and just going after it is key. And it brought up a sort of a thought what I have when it comes to how a lot of business should be done, which is just go after it, just try something. And I feel like that's something you've done continually uh, throughout your career path, right? If you think about it, right? You um, try it and you're not afraid for it not to work. Right. And then you try something else. You're not afraid for that not to work. And then something else hits and it's amazing. So how do you approach that? Um, even let's take the liquor store. Right. What were things that attributed to that level of success of sort of I'm just going to see if this works and put this in place? And because um, because the alternative of it being wrong never scared me because I don't value somebody's opinion who's watching me in the stands while I'm on the field. Let's, let me say that nice and slow for everybody. The thought that your partner, your brother, your spouse, your aunt, your mother, your best friend has judgment of what you're doing on the field of play is asinine. They are a spectator eating popcorn watching you work. I've, that's it. I don't know what else to tell you. Like if it, if it failed, <laughs> if it failed, it failed within my own mind. I was disappointed. I was, I was rarely confused. I'm, you know, when my stuff fails, I'm like, ah, it was this, you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good like that. That's about accountability. People always trying to blame somebody else. Mm -hmm. I'm focused on blaming myself all the time. Mm -hmm. um, and you learn, you learn, you know, but again, back to all those reps, this was the childhood, you know, I did a, a, a godly amounts of things wrong as a child. 
baseball card shows, the liquor store. But by the time I even got into my 20s and then through my 20s and the 30s, tons of things wrong. I'm just refined right now. I'm 46 going on 96, you know? And so there's a lot of experience in, in there. And most importantly, I still make mistakes every day. I still make mistakes every day. I just don't dwell on them. I just don't, I can't wrap my head around the logic of why. Mm. Life, I, I watch people very carefully. People are fundamentally insecure and overvalue other people's opinions. And it leads to incredibly vulnerable behavior. And I just want people to put themselves on the highest pedestal. And it doesn't mean you have an ego. It means you've just chosen to love yourself. <laughs> like everybody sucks at stuff too. That's very true. I think that I think that's just a great way to look at at things. When you kind of touched on passion a little early earlier, and you mentioned a lot of different subjects, Power Rangers and whatnot, right? Um, uh, baseball cards when you were younger, uh, you know, building your dad's liquor store. What what is the actual passion of yours at that age? Was it growing? It was helping operations. My parents. Help I, I was obsessed with my parents. I'm still obsessed with my parents. I was obsessed that they did it for me. They they left this bad place. They had nothing. They just grinded. We went on. I went on one. I went on two, two family vacations in my entire childhood. Mm. Like, you know, they sacrificed, and I I knew I was talented. I knew, I knew it. You know, like, I don't know what to tell you. Like, it's why I associate with entertainers and athletes so much. They're the ones who knew at seven or 10 or, let me just break it to you. Beyonce knew. She knew. She knew at 11, she was going to be a superstar. LeBron knew. And, and I knew. I knew that I was going to be an all-time great businessman. I just did. I knew it. I don't even know how else to explain it to you. I just knew. Yeah. And, and it was important to me to do right by my parents. You know, when I tell the kids to be patient, you have time to get yours. I worked every day from 22 to 34 for my father, never made more than $100,000 a year. And that was the last year I worked for him. Every other year, I was in the 40s and 50K a year until I opened up my mouth out of disgust because I took his business from a $3.8 million business to a $65 million business. I, I gave up my entire 20s and early 30s for my parents. Mm. I love when people try to razz on me. Don't listen to Gary Vee's parents. I'm like, you have no fucking idea what you're talking about. I made my parents rich. Yeah. I'm proud of that. You know, towards, and I want to be transparent here because I know that actually there's some people that maybe are debating family, like towards my early 30s into, into like before I left and AJ grew up, like I started having resentment towards my dad. I built the whole damn business. I was like, dad, what the fuck? Like, give me a piece of this business. He's like, you'll get it when I die. I'm like, you're going to die at 90. I'm going to be 70. <laughs> you know? And so, and so, but you know, I, that resentment changed as I got worldly, as I got older, as I saw the world, I'm like, wait, he was just in the old school immigrant mindset, right? You know, family business. I run it. I die. You take it. And so, you know, that's why I'm glad I was able to work through that with myself really. Um, but, but, yeah, I was just, what drove me back then was giving back to my parents. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, that's and, I knew, and, and, and I loved being able to be the guy. You know, one of the other reasons my dad and I had friction towards the end was I became the guy. Mm -hmm. Every liquor company, every winery, everybody in the industry was like, Gary, Gary, Gary. And my dad started to feel like a schlemiel. There was this great thing he used to say to me of why he would be upset. He would say, he would say it in Russian and it would translate to, I'm just a senator with an empty briefcase. Mm. And what that translated to in Russia, everything was black market and all, you know, and what was in the briefcase was cash and you would trade it for, you know, life, right? And no, by the way, no different in America, just does, they just do it different. And so, um, you know, my, my, it was tough for my dad. He said, you know, I'm a senator. Yeah, I'm the owner of the store, but nobody fucking talks to me because I have no money in the fucking briefcase. And so he felt less like a man. I felt like I wasn't getting compensated my impact towards the end. And it was really healthy for me to thank God I had an 11 year younger brother who I wanted to do a business with in my lifetime. And it kind of worked out. Absolutely. Well, let's shift our conversation to that a little bit with, with Vayner, Vayner Media specifically. You were at the 
at the time you were doing the wine library, right? Primarily, I, I think that if I'm not mistaken, that was also for your father, um, essentially to build sort of a brand around um, getting yes, people thank, to get thank, to. The yeah, thank you for knowing that. I knew that when I was going to leave my dad's store, which I always knew would happen, mm -hmm. that he would fuck it up. <laughs> right on. You know, and, and I say that with love for him because he's really transforming lately. He, I'm so, he went to VCon and had like a real moment. Like he's just, my dad has always thought his employees were his enemy because he grew up in, in Russia where everyone stole from the business. My dad is so scared of stealing. Like when one, per, when like, you know, they're stealing in a retail store. When one employee steals or a customer steals, it breaks his soul. It's like the thing he fears the most on earth. And so, you know, I wanted to build a brand because I knew that they weren't going to operate it as well as I did. And that's why I built the wine library brand instead of Shoppers Discount Liquors because I knew I could build something that when I left and it worked, you know, the decline after I left was slower than it would have been had I not built a brand. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. And, and so with that, I mean, essentially, when you went to VaynerMedia from that, you had created a brand. But now it, it probably felt like you had to just start over. I did start Like what over. transpired there essentially, right? You, with, with you well, wanting I, to- Well, I like starting over. I'll be honest with you. Even as you just said that, one of the things that sucks of becoming Gary Vee is that I can't truly ever start over again. Meaning guess, yeah. like, you know, like it's going to be like, I even yeah. like, I'm pumped the NFT thing is fucked up right now because everyone's shitting on it. And that's like good for me. I'm like, yeah. Like, you know, like I like, I, I like being underestimated. I like when this it's stacked against me. If I was an athlete, I would have been the kind of athlete that loved to be on the road when everyone's booing you. I love that, you know? Mm. And so, so I, um, I definitely uh, loved it. So I don't know what else to tell you. Like the economy had collapsed similar to what might happen right now. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it was 2009. Nobody believed in social media and Fortune 5. It was like all stacked against me. Comedy was crap. I had no money. We started VaynerMedia in somebody else's conference room because I had no money for rent. Mm -hmm. um, uh, nobody in the Fortune 500, Pepsi, NHL, Campbell's, our early clients even knew what social media was. My brother AJ's laptop registered the NHL on Facebook and Twitter, Campbell's Soup on Facebook and Twitter, Pepsi on Facebook and Twitter. Like it was real pioneer shit. You know, it was really fun. I loved it. I love it still today. We're now almost 1,500 employees globally, no. 300 in Asia, 300 in Europe, 200 in, in Mexico City. We've got a huge company. And I love the, you know, everybody yells at me for doing it. Everybody around me is mad that I'm the CEO of VaynerMedia because I'm a COO type CEO. I'm in like, I'm in like staffing meetings. And all my friends <laughs> and fancy people are like, what are you doing? <laughs> You know, but this goes back to the, you know, I always live the advice I give. I would make a lot, 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 lot more money if I hired a CEO for VaynerMedia. Mm. I just like doing it. Can we talk a little bit about that as well? I mean, um, one of the newest hires that we've noticed was you now have a chief heart officer, um, which I, I think is a great idea. You know, we, we all do. We think it's phenomenal that that's a focus. But can you tell us a little bit about what that role means? And, and I wanted HR. I want, first of all, I, one of the devastating moments of my life was when yeah. I started to understand corporate America and realized that people were fearful of HR. I thought HR was the nice place. Mm. And so that was a big wake up call for me in the call of 2012, 13, 14. I'm like, wait a minute. Because mm -hmm. I'm in, I'm always in my own bubble. I'm in my own, like, I never know what my competitors are doing. I never know what the industry is doing. I'm always in my own cocoon. Mm -hmm. And so we started getting bigger. And AJ, who's like, you know, 11 years younger, but like very studious and like knows, like, like more like normal, <laughs> is like, hey, we need somebody in HR. I'm like, all right, awesome. Because I was doing it, right? Because I love it. I still do it. Um, but, and then like, we had like 80 employees at the time and they were like, no, no, no. And I was like, why? And they're like, and I, and I started learning and I was like, oh my God. Like the thing that I always thought from afar was like the guidance counselor that had your back 
is the person that fires you. <laughs> like, I don't know, like that's, you know, it just became like this thing. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, oh man. So that happened. We did the thing, it was fine. But there was one executive, Claude Silver, who's our chief art officer who worked for us. And I was like, she's like me. Like she was so adored by her team that I was like shaken and she was just naturally empathetic and so many things. And so she actually quit VaynerMedia. And that was like one of the saddest days for me because she wanted to get into HR, she thought or something. She wasn't sure, maybe therapy or like, anyway, from the day she quit, I had a master plan to get her back. And so (laughs) I, uh, and then when we had a dinner where she was like, potentially considering it. I was like, hey, I've been thinking about this title called Chief Heart Officer. I think it really represents what I believe, which is this is not the head of HR. This is the person that's the heart and soul of the organization. And I want this person on our org chart to be above the CFO. That's the part. It's one thing to like, anybody can have a chief heart officer. It's another thing for the organization to operationalize the chief heart officer's job to have the ability to shut down the CFO if the CFO is making a decision based on money. Mm-hmm. That's insane. Mm-hmm. And that's why I think we're changing the game. We have, I have many meetings where it's me, the CFO and Claude, and they're both coming at me. And by the way, they love each other and we have like a great culture. They're, but they're coming at me on a thing passionate about their things. And you know, it's the cliche things you would think of right now. Alan, who's amazing, is like, listen, I wanna be, I'm here because I believe in Chief Heart Officer. I knew what I was signing up for. He's like, but if we go out of business, we can't be a heart for anybody. And and then Claude's like, yeah, Alan, but we're not gonna go out of business. And if we do this, we're compromising. And, and so it's just like very fun stuff. And you know, you know, Claude will win like 7.3 out of every 10 times. There are times absolutely where Alan's perspective, you know, where Claude has to be careful is creating entitlement. Mm. You know, when you're coming from pure love and you're a business, I had an employee the other day that told me that she's really anxious in the office and can't work in the office. And she's incredibly uncomfortable working on Zoom. Mm. Mm. And so I mean, I that's said, something that, yeah, that's, I mean, just this, small little this, details, right? But That's yeah, cool. and she's like, look, I can't work in the office and I can't work on Zoom. And I'm like, you do understand that you told me that you can't work and you want me to pay you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, she meant it. And she and after I broke it down with her for five seconds, she started laughing. And it was like a very important moment for me as an operator. Like we have so much entitlement in the world now, delusion. That this very nice, very capable young woman who I like a lot, literally told me in a meeting, I'm the CEO. (laughs) She can't work in either scenario that we have, which is crazy that we have two scenarios and must get paid to not work. (laughs) And so, um, you know, I, I, so Claude has to be careful of that, but no organizations truly have heart at the center. It just is what it is. I've looked around the world very carefully. There's some small businesses, you know, some mom and pop shops that really go there. Sure. Um, but like, I really want to transcend the business world. And that's why I wrote 12 and a half. That's why I make the content that I make. I'm still running a business. I'm trying to do real stuff, but I do think we can have more kindness and empathy and caring in the business world. And I think that could be the engine to the business being successful. I think people think of it as, well, if you're gonna be nice, that's gonna decline. No, no, I actually think the engine that's helping me build empires is the kindness. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Speaking on that, like you, you mentioned earlier, your team is now up to 1500 people um, all over the world. That's phenomenal. You know, Can you talk to us a little bit about how you approach scale from an empathetic lens? I know you touched on this with having your chief, chief heart officer but what are some three things that you do that you feel every company is who's trying to grow from that from that standpoint that should get right in that regard? I'm gonna give you the big one and this will really help some people, I hope. This is interesting, pay attention. Hire fast. Most organizations hire too slow. Mm-hmm. They have, they, 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 now this is where it gets more interesting. 
hire fast, fire faster, right? So when you're hiring fast, oh, by the way, when you're hiring slow, you make the wrong call all the time too. Mm -hmm. I have all time human intuition skills and I've hired poorly many times in my career. Hire fast if you're gonna scale, fire faster with empathy, right? Three, you know, sometimes you know 100 days in, 50 days in, you have to go to that person and be like, Quan, I don't know if it's gonna work <laughs> you, know, you, you, you wanna be empathetic to somebody, you wanna try to be kind on the way out, right? Maybe your severance package is a little bit sweeter because it was too fast, but you've gotta hire fast, fire faster, and here's the big one, promote fastest. So many people know they've got somebody great on their team, but they wait nine more months so it's the one year to do the thing. Let me give you a really interesting insight to an alpha winner. If you promote somebody on their hundredth day working in your organization, you have a real shot of having that person be there for a long time. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So my number one piece of advice is around hiring and firing to scale. What that requires is my next piece of advice, which is the byproduct of how you do the first part. Optimistic points of view. I always think everything I'm going to do is going to work out. (laughs) Every office I hire, every employee I hire, I just deal with reality after. But too many people go in with cynicism and doubt. Um, And then the third one, play within your financial means. When I open up Singapore, it could be a catastrophic disaster, but I can afford it if it goes to zero. And so I don't open it until that's true. So growing appropriately with timing, not too fast, not too slow. I see. That makes a lot of sense. So there's not a whole, the, the, the risk is, is very moderate from that standpoint. Yeah. The right? thing that, you know, people see me as like, like you would all be flabbergasted how risk adverse I am. It seemingly seems like it's crazy, but I'm, I've got Easter eggs. I've got like cash dug in the ground. I've got it like hedged <laughs> over here. Like I'm, I'm an immigrant that's scared to, you know, I don't wanna go to zero. I'm also, and this is a big part, I'm also grounded in humility. I'm willing to go backwards for my conviction. Wow. And so, you know, I'm willing to downsize my home, my meals, my vacations. And most people aren't. Hmm. What, um, let's shift the conversation a little bit to building a brand, social media. You, you've, you've been a big advocate of a lot of different social media platforms, Twitter yes. being a, an early one, uh, then Facebook for a long yes. time. Now I, I believe it's TikTok. That's right. what, is, what is your favorite platform to produce content on and why? Probably Twitter, because it's the most, it's the least friction to interact with all of you, mm-hmm. right? Twitter is the easiest for me to reply to people. Mm-hmm. But I don't have a favorite from like a content production standpoint because I reverse engineer where the attention is and that's my favorite. My, atten- my favorite is the ability to share my passions and have it listened to. Back to humility, most people failed on the transition to Instagram from Instagram to TikTok because they didn't have the humility to go back to zero after they messed 8,000 fans on Instagram. Absolutely. And I watched, real, I watched real people, social media experts, celebrities, influencers be a year too late to TikTok because they didn't have the humility to start over. Mm. What, do you think it's important there's some, there's some types of businesses, or, or would you say there are some types of businesses that are not right for specific social media platforms? I think that there are certain types of businesses that will do better on certain platforms than others, but they, to answer your question, I think every business could be on every platform. Mm-hmm. And I know this because dentists, lawyers, Financial advisors are emailing me every day that they're so grateful that they listen to me on TikTok and it's become their number one source of revenue. Mm. When I was yelling about TikTok, when it was called Musical.ly, everybody made fun of me because they said it was just for 13-year-old girls to dance. 
I reminded them back then that that's what they said about Facebook. Mm-hmm. Facebook was just for college kids, remember? Yeah. Now Facebook is just for grandparents. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and so I'm very good at willing to risk my time to be on a platform early once it hits enough scale for me to believe that everyone's gonna be on it eventually. Mm, absolutely, I think that's key. Um, looking back on, on life lessons, right? If you were to kind of look back at the path that you've chosen for yourself, clearly it's been a wild ride, but a good one. Is there any part of what you've done so far that you would change and, and why would you change if, if that's the answer? This is going to be an interesting one for you, unless you've read my book or have paid attention to my content in the last year. I have historically struggled and continued to not be great at candor for my employees, which is bananas because Gary V's entire, if you were to ask me, why does Gary V do well? I would tell you that candor is a core rationale, right? I'm great at candor in this setting because I'm not talking to a person, I'm talking to the world. I so dislike negativity and darkness and hate and bad that I try to avoid at all cost firing people, Mm. which led to a lot of issues. Because I never loved the money and because I loved people and because I didn't like confrontation, and because I would sit with feelings and try to solve them because I was emotionally strong. And I, and, and really, if I think about my 20s, probably some ego that they're better off with me because I'm about to build big companies than somewhere else, right? I struggled, I, I really wish I would change the way I communicated to my employees, especially in the first 15 to 20 years of my career now. If, if every employee that ever worked for me in the first 25 years of my career was on this Zoom, 93 of them would make you feel like Gary's exactly who he is. They, they, would, they love me. We are friends and family in perpetuity. It's the 7% that I struggle with, that, mm-hmm. that I regret. It, and by the way, almost 80% of that 7% are people I was incredibly close with. Because it crossed the chasm of I love that person, but they sucked at their job. I wasn't able to have the combo. And then it got sloppy. It's like a bad breakup, right? Like I would start acting subconsciously different and they would quit. I would ask my dad in my 20s that really struggled with it. So I'd be like, this is where I used my dad. I was like, dad, can you fire Johnny? You know? Mm. And like, that was super inappropriate, right? Like a week earlier, I'm like, Johnny, you're my guy. And then a week later he's fired. He never talks to my dad. I talked to him 14 times a day and then my dad's talking to him, you're fired. That wasn't good. Right. Then like uh, at Vayner, you know, on Tuesday, I would see Paul C. I'd be Paul, hug him, be like, how's it going? How's the Budweiser account? Make, you know, keep up the good work. And then on Tuesday, he's, I got to talk to him for 15 minutes. Cause at that point I was, I grew up a little bit. And I can do the firing. So Tuesday I tell Paul, you know, and then on Friday, I'd be like, Paul, you got five minutes. And Paul would come in like, Paul, unfortunately, as you probably know, this is the end of the road. And be like, what the fuck? Tuesday, you said I was doing a great job. And so like, I really struggled. I really struggled. I, you know, I'm giving you pretty extreme version. It wasn't as ridiculous as what I just said with Paul, but like, it wasn't great. Like, cause I was always positive. Mm-hmm. I wasn't able to give critical feedback. And I was also hopeful. I always, I, you know, one, I'm telling you the truth on Tuesday, on Wednesday, I'd be like, okay, if I get Paul to do this, maybe it'll go, like I was fighting. I was fighting. I always felt that it was my job to put the players in the best position to succeed. I'm the coach, right? I had it happen this week. When there's nothing more intoxicating. I've had an employee for several years. I put him in a new spot. He crushed the last two weeks. Should have been fired for the last three years. Figured it out. Yeah. You know, like, like yeah. you know, and so like, but like to answer your question, yes. The, th- the 3% of people that have worked for me in the last 25 years who are not about Gary Vee are right and it was because of the sloppiness in my candor. And I've gotten a lot better in my candor and it's changed my business and me. Right on. No, absolutely. That's great. 
Well, Gary, we appreciate your time. You know, it's been. Let uh, me let me sneak let me sneak in two more oh, minutes because we I wanted to ask I wanted to answer at least one question from the crowd. No, no, yeah, for sure. I was going to turn it over to the audience, but no, please, yeah, sure. absolutely. Go ahead, go ahead, audience, go. Oh, for sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> what we can do is is uh, uh, same sort of as we did before. Type in your questions in the chat box if you have them, and we'll go through them. Um, anyone here in the in the conference room, if you have a question. Uh, give it to Allison and she'll help um, arrange them for us. Um, but let's yeah, open it up to the audience and see if there's any questions that we can uh, have Gary answer uh, right here. Okay, here's one uh, for uh, from Noah. How do you intentionally give yourself creative space and, cult and cultivate innovation? Um, time in, not the issue. Time is not the issue, excuse me. <laughs> so, um, no, I think everyone has their own process. I'm doing it at all times. It is like my natural being. Mm. The second I have a hypothesis, I won't compromise on it. I'll let it sit and I'll bake. Mm. So I don't have a room. I don't have meditation. I don't take a walk every Sunday. I do, I'm more of a counter puncher. Meaning when it's strike, I'll give you a great one, NFTs, right? NFTs were in the backdrop for me since 17. Then December, 2019, I read one thing. I listened to four more things. I had five conversations. That was it. I shut down for four months and went all in. And so, um, you know, that that's how, I, everyone's different Noah, but for me, it's about protecting my curiosity and seeing it through and not letting even perceived important things on my calendar take precedent. I've got to see it through. And that happens occasionally. Ooh, absolutely. No, very good. Um, okay. Uh, oh, here's one from Grace. How important is micro failure to success? That's a good question. I believe something pretty radical, but I don't think it's that radical. And I don't, I definitely don't think long-term it's going to be radical. I believe one of the biggest reasons so many people have anxiety in our society is because we eliminated winning and losing for children 25 years ago. Eighth place trophies have led to mental unhappiness. We have demonized losing so much during a kid's journey that people actually have become to believe that it's bad when losing is the best. How important is it? It's my favorite thing on earth. I even wonder sometimes if I micro lose on purpose, that's how much I believe in it. <laughs> wow. Mm -hmm. Wow, incredible. I really believe it. I, we have to champion adversity. Mm. We've, we've created zoo animals and then we send them into the world. Do you know what happens to a zebra that's been in the Bronx Zoo for 10 years when you put it into the wild in Africa? It gets eaten by a lion in 10 seconds. And that's yeah. what's happening to our under 25 year olds. Mm -hmm. 100%, yeah. Uh, Wendy uh, says, what is your favorite mm -hmm. industries to work with? Things that are inherently consumer, fashion, beverage, cereals, like anything that is like selling something to humans is a lot of fun to me. More than B2B, more than one-time buys like a car, like consumables, right? Toothpaste, sneakers, like I'm just fast. I really like those industries. Consumer packaged goods, things that are fast, constantly changing, right? I mean, you know, the most fashionable girls I know are wearing mom jeans, right? Like. <laughs> from the eighties, right? Like, so like, you know, like that's constant change. Like Crocs were the coolest 25 years ago. They were the least cool seven years ago. Now they're cool again. Like, I love that kind of shit. <laughs> Absolutely, very good. Uh, do you ever take time for yourself? Being empathetic can be exhausting from time to time. What do you do for self-care? That's a phenomenal question. Um, this is gonna make sense because there's others in here that have it. Being empathetic is not exhausting to me, it's invigorating. That's just the truth. Mm. See, there's something really powerful about pure giving. This is very important. I really hope this hits for somebody. When you give, you have 0.0, .0 expectation of the other person that you gave to. Mm. Where people struggle is they think if they're empathetic, then something happens for them. They'll be a harder worker. Like all the nice things I do for my employees comes with the complete belief 
that it's not gonna necessarily change. I know it does for some, but I don't expect it. Giving is pure. So for me, everything I do is pure, right? Like I'm supposed to be downstairs six minutes ago for something, but like I'm in the zone. <laughs> and like, I feel like we're connecting me and this crew right here. And I'm like, fuck it. I want to give a little more, right? Like I'm a little anxious cause I gotta go, but like, <laughs> like <laughs> but I don't think this extra seven or 10 minutes is gonna like make you like, like me more or, or buy a V friend or, you know, like, like giving is giving. And so it's easy for me because it's not exhausting at all because it's just my flow and I have no expectation. Um, but this is gonna help other people in a different way. This will be interesting. If I just want to sleep in on a Tuesday and cancel my nine to 11, and this does not happen, but if I did, I do. I do cancel things at times. I do like, I'm not gonna judge myself. And so like if I need Friday off or if I wanna go on an extra vacation or I just don't judge myself. And so like whatever, I always protect myself. You know, big misconception with me, hustle, hustle. I talk about passion. When you love what you do, of course you do it a lot. It's your game. But like, here's something. I sleep seven, eight, nine hours a night. There's no sixes and fives and fours. Like, so I protect myself, you know? And so um, that's how I get it done. I I, I would argue, I would argue I'm in self-care 24, seven, 365. I love that. I'm in self-care. I'm in self-care constantly. Yeah. It just, I'm very, I'm very fortunate. I won the DNA lottery where the thing that makes me happiest is when I'm making other people happy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I but, but this is where people get confused with nice guys finish last. There's a lot of people who will say what I just said, but it's manipulation to get what they want. I love yeah. when my employees, I love, this is why I don't do resumes or any of that bullshit. <laughs> Tell me your weakness. Oh, you know, sometimes I just work too hard. <laughs> you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, that kind of answer, right? Like, you know, like, so anyway, nonetheless, I, um, but that doesn't mean that's not the case for others. Some things are hard for others. It's hard for me to read. I'm being real serious right now. I clearly have a real, real reading disability that wasn't really caught. Like I do a lot of weird things. I have a ton of five minute meetings because I can't read an email that every one of you can read in 19 seconds. If mm-hmm. I, I see two paragraphs, I'm out. <laughs> I don't you know I don't know if any of you've been in you know this is something I know gets a lot of people in my company make fun of me for uh, so I don't know if any of you have ever interacted with somebody who's emailed with me but I would tell you that 60% of the emails I send I send the entire email in the headline mm. <laughs> like four like three sentences in the headline yeah, it's just, you know, like that's just kind of where I'm at. That's probably why Twitter worked for me. It was like built for me. You know, it was like boom, boom. I, was, every, I remember when Twitter came out, they were like 140 characters. Everyone's like, what the fuck? I was like, this is plenty. <laughs> you know, like that's, uh, anyway. All right, I really got to go. Absolutely. We'll we appreciate soon. your Bye, time. Bye. Yeah, Cheers. thank you very much.